My name is Patrick J. McGinnis, and I coined the term FOMO. That's short for fear of missing out, and it's why some people end up following the crowd. But we're not like them. We're part of a new species that isn't afraid to do things differently. I call us FOMO sapiens. And this is the show where you'll meet people like us, phenomenal FOMO sapiens, to learn how they find the courage and the ideas to live exceptional lives. FOMO. FOMO. Welcome back to FOMO Sapiens, the show for people who don't just follow the crowd, but instead take their own path to success in business and in life. I'm your host, Patrick J. McGinnis, venture capitalist by day, author and podcaster by night, and FOMO Sapiens 24-7. And today, the topic is burnout and the epidemic of burnout. And if you aren't feeling burned out or you haven't felt burned out, then lucky you, you can skip on to listen to something light and charming, but... This is still going to be good, but uh, it is a it is an important topic, and it's somebody who has felt burned out a lot in the last year and a half because you know I'm still human. I just wanted to get into it with my guest today, and my guest is an expert on this topic. Her name is Jennifer Moss, and she is a Harvard Business Review contributor and nationally syndicated radio columnist. She also sits on the Global Happiness Council. That sounds awesome, which is a small group of leading scientists and economists that supports the UN's sustainable goals related to global well-being. Now, we're going to be talking about, first of all, just kind of getting into why we feel burnout, what burnout is, and why it's an epidemic. Then we're going to talk about the causes of burnout, and then we're going to get into solutions. And we're going to also talk about the contrast between, for example, a solopreneur or a team member or an entrepreneur and how all those different types of people experience burnout, because it's not the same. And in fact, a a lot of the things that she reveals from her uh, from her research, Jen's research, it's counterintuitive. It was surprising to me, and so I found this conversation particularly enlightening. Now, one of the things that keeps me from getting all burned out, and I talk about it a lot on the show, is meditation. And I have a meditation accountability group, which people have been joining. So we've got a little group going. If you want to join it, reach out to me, and you can send me a message on Instagram at Patrick J McGinnis. You can send me a tweet at PJ McGinnis. You can email me at letsconnect at patrickmcginnis.com. Check it out because what's cool is basically every day you meditate and I I commit to 10 minutes a day. I check in. You can see that I did it. When you do check in, I can see that you did it. And, and it's basically just a great way of, I like to joke that it's competitive meditation, but it's a way for people who are a little bit type A to keep themselves honest and accountable. And it's worked in the last, I've been doing this for three years now, but in the last two years about, I've only missed like three days. So I'm really proud of that. I think it makes a difference. I feel better. And uh, I invite you to join me. And now on to the interview. So as you know, I like to go deep early. And so I decided to start our interview, as I always do, by asking Jen my favorite question. What's the most important decision that you've had to make to get to where you are today? I made a decision in uh, 2003 to go to California uh, and leave my job that was a pretty decent job. Um, and it was a great opportunity for me to work in journalism straight out of school at TV Ontario, for those of you Canadians who might know of it. Um, but there was an opportunity with my um, husband at the time to go to uh, San Jose. He was a pro athlete and they invited him to go and play there. And um, it's pro lacrosse though. So you don't make a lot of money 
moving to California. So we still needed to find jobs and, and do the work. So it was a pr- bit risky. Um, and we had to get our green cards and a whole bunch of hurdles, but we thought, okay, we're young, we should do it. And I left my really good job and I had to work at an Indian food restaurant along with a bookstore and an Ann Taylor loft to be able to survive it. Um, I had many jobs and you know, what was so good about that experience was a, it, it, I've looked back and thought there it wasn't a step back. It was definitely a move forward, even though in the moment I felt like, what am I doing? I'm this educated person that had a really good job in journalism and I dumped it to, you know, work at these three jobs. But it ended up translating into some really huge opportunities there. And uh, and I learned a lot that I was able to bring back throughout my career to what I'm doing now. And and I look at that as maybe that most, you know, interesting and, and productive time in my life, even though it felt like it at times was maybe the worst decision I'd ever made. <laughs> I love it. FOMO based, FOMO based decision making. And by the way, we do have a lot of listeners in Canada. And so, uh, you know, Canadians, um, we do try to get some Canadian guests on. So we're glad to have you here today, Jen. Now, you have written this book, The Burnout Epidemic, and you have identified burnout as the area where you are focusing your time and energy. And it's a big topic, I mean, especially now where so many of us are working from home and where just the world is it's like constantly serving us up a plate of stress inducing conditions. Right. So, you know, I think we all feel it, but what was behind your decision? Like, why did you decide like this was the mountain you wanted to climb? I'd been working in the concept of positive psychology interventions in workplaces and um, understanding through data, really database insights on how, if we impact you know, people's well-being in the work, how it translates into performance. And we really focused on these sort of seven psychological fitness traits, like hope and efficacy and resilience and gratitude and mindfulness, all these types of, um, you know, these skills that we can build as individuals. And that's really important for us as individuals ourselves to be managing in our own personal lives. But when you go into the workplace and you start to understand that we can do all this work and yet we can have broken policies, bad behavior, uh, infrastructure that's not being met, poor corporate hygiene that's just not doing the table stakes stuff right. And then all of that work that you're doing isn't actually um, being supported. And so then it sort of atrophies in the workplace and it can even be doing the opposite, making you sick. So then it became, okay, how do we actually look at burnout and chronic stress? And then subsequently, if we eradicate that happiness inside the workplace um, in the way that actually gives people what they need, which is you know, water, not ice cream, you know, and a lot of what I see right now are these tactics that are really great, tasty, flavorful, you know, know, little gifts or perks. But when it comes to really solving for people's unhappiness, we need to get much deeper. And that became the process of which my research was based on for many years before the pandemic struck and it highlighted a, a problem that's been around for a long time. Yeah, you can't live off snacks. You need, you need meals. Exactly. I mean, we'd. I, I'd love to. I would love to. Eat, like, if I could live off cheese, I'd do it. But it's not going to happen. <laughs> and and I and I've been noticing. I'm curious. Like, as you know, I'm sure all of you listening right now have been feeling a lot of these feelings. It's like I feel like the first wave of the pandemic. We were all in like our 
brace for crash position. So you sort of like became a stoic and you're like, I'm going to just bear this out and grin and bear it for the next, you know, three months, six months, whatever. And now that we've gone through the whole cycle and continues, it's like you start to see the longer term effects and people are getting sick and people are stressed and people are quitting their jobs to create nice resignation. And like, there's all these things that like, it took a while for them to manifest. And so it's real just to get started you know, definitionally, I would love to hear how you define burnout and then you call it an epidemic. Talk about why you feel it's an epidemic. In 2019, the World Health Organization identified burnout as an occupational phenomenon. It's workplace stress left unmanaged. It took about 40 years for researchers and they still disagree. Some feel like that's too narrow, but others are so excited, like me, Dr. Christine Maslach, Dr. Michael Leiter, who are really part of this effort to change the conversation around burnout, to really define it as a workplace issue. And the reason for that is if we don't identify it as a workplace problem, then it becomes on individuals to solve alone. So here's self-care, you're feeling burned out, we'll just do more yoga. Here's an app for you to use to meditate. That'll help. Listen to rain for 30 seconds. I'm sure that will solve for systemic discrimination that is making you burned out. When we actually look at the root causes of burnout, um, and there are six, it's this idea that with the, with the organization involved, then we can solve it as a we problem. Yes, we still have to work on our psychological fitness, our emotional intelligence, um, but organizations have a huge role to play. And if they don't actually fix those broken policies, then we'll never never solve for burnout. So that definition is really what I go by, the, the WHO definition, because it's how we can, I think, have uh, hope that it can be fixed. FOMO. Tudo bem, meus queridos FOMO sapiens. Now that right there was Portuguese. And as you know, I love speaking foreign languages, but I'm not alone. One in five Americans have learned a new language on their bucket list. If that's you, make 2024 the year you finally check it off that list with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's tips and tools are approachable, accessible, and delivered with conversation-based teaching so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Now, FOMO sapiens, you know I speak four languages, and it takes work to stay on top of them, especially with French. C'est difficile. But with Babbel, I'm able to practice practical conversations that I can actually use in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash FOMO. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash FOMO. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash FOMO. Rules and restrictions may apply. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, or delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you improve efficiency by bringing all major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move, so do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. 
And with rising prices everywhere you look, you got to do the math and save money. Good news. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. So head over to NetSuite.com slash FOMO. That's NetSuite.com slash FOMO. NetSuite.com slash FOMO. FOMO. So in other words, what you're saying is it's if you're feeling burnt out, I think we oftentimes we put it on ourselves. It's like it's my fault because... I can't hack it. I can't handle it. I'm not mentally tough. And then if you think about it and you put it on yourself, you're totally letting the organization that has created the conditions for your burnout off the hook. And because people won't talk about it because it's like, well, I don't want to tell people I'm burned out because they'll think I'm weak or a loser. Then nothing gets fixed, which I never thought about this before because you know, it is kind of like a taboo thing. And so this is, I like this, this is, this is powerful. Talk about these, you know, these six reasons, obviously, um, there, you know, we could get into it really deep, but uh, give us a little overview of, of the six kind of drivers. Well, overwork, I think we can all recognize that as one of the root causes of burnout. It was the leading cause of burnout pre-pandemic. It is continuing to be the leading cause inside the pandemic. But before, you know, the the 2020 March 15th moment of the day happened, they um, the, the ILO had actually done a major report and found that overwork was responsible for the death of 28 million people a year, 120,000 people in the US alone. So it's obviously catastrophic. That's a big problem. But and it often becomes the only thing that people associate with burnout. But it's actually these other causes like lack of fairness, which is discriminatory behavior, you know, inside the workplace, lack of community. So this sense of not having friends at work or feeling lonely at work or feeling um, not safe. So feeling like maybe your boss is bullying you or you're feeling bullied at work that can tie to that discriminatory behavior. It also shows up in um, proper rewards for effort. So are we compensating people? There's a whole properly, which should be table stake stuff, but there's a lot of people in shift work right now that experience the deficit of that nurses working long, way too many hours and not getting paid compared to the physicians, you know, that are right beside them working, you know, similar hours. We see this in EMS. MT frontline policing, um, those types of roles really end up feeling like they're not being rewarded for the efforts and teachers inside of many countries not having value. We also see that in lack of agency. So um, not being able to choose when, how, where you work, um, you know, and having people micromanage you around that, just watching you as you work and proctoring and monitoring you. The increase in bossware really um, as a issue this year and people actually watching you through video while you work, while you're at home. And, and the final one is values mismatch. So this idea that when we become really emotionally distanced from our work where we're disconnected from our jobs, we start to lose the sense of feeling valued and that there's meaning. And you see that a lot right now with nurses and teachers who talked about words like they were using fatalist words, kind of like, this is never going to change. And I don't know why I'm here. And I feel demoralized. I don't, I don't feel like I'm impacting anyone. And, um, and when you have that moment where you're really losing sight of why you care and the mission of your work, uh, that predicts burnout as well. This is not what I thought you were going to tell me. I'll, I'll tell you what, why it's counterintuitive to me. Cause I had a question I wrote down, which is are FOMO sapiens more likely to have burnout because FOMO sapiens are like these people who are like running after things and 
creating their own path and it's like intense and but there but the thing is there's a lot of autonomy so like you are when you're a homo sapiens you're making decisions for yourself and maybe it means you work a lot but you sort of have agency and you are deciding the direction in which you're going to go and what i'm hearing from you right now which is which is interesting is that a lot of these problems that that drive the feelings of burnout are because of the fact that you are disengaged because you are working in a culture where you can affect things, where things are foisted upon you and you are like just along for the ride. And, and so you have this like feeling of just like at the end of the day, um, and we think about it with like positive psychology, it's like there's just like you are completely left out of all the things that should make you happy. And so I'm curious when we think about that though, how about the, like the entrepreneur or like the solopreneur, is it different or how, how does it, how does it work? I love that you asked that question um, because I talk often and I wrote this article in um, Harvard Business Review pre-pandemic that ended up being really popular. And I think because a lot of people, you know, put their hands up to say, this is so me. Uh, and I write about how, if you love what you do, the idea that you never work a day in your life is a complete myth because we have this tendency as people who really either care about the stakeholder or we're passionate about what we do uh, and really enjoy the work, we can forget to, to really engage in self-care and to manage our own responsibility of modeling the behavior, even for our teams and the people around us. Because we we get so passionate, we sometimes forget that other people don't necessarily feel exactly the same way as we do and have the same drive and motivation around the, the subject matter or the, the work. And I started to do some research around this and looked at this really interesting research that looked at harmonious versus obsessive passion. And when we're harmonious, that means we have things in check. You know, we're still eating dinner with family and friends and, you know, we're going to the bathroom in the day and eating properly and taking care of ourselves. And, you know, and we're, we're stopping to do our hobbies. We're managing our lives in, an, in a healthy, effective way. But there's times I know for sure where I think, wow, I'm doing more. And I mentioned this earlier when we, we were talking before getting on, um, on to recording the session was this idea that, you know, I did a talk last night at eight o'clock at night. And I love the work, but I recognized I was making a bad decision that it was too late. And I had promised myself that I wouldn't do that. So I don't burn out. And we're not great at doing that at saying no, when we need to manage our own um, workload. And it can actually become unhealthy. But I should mention that in our same research, we did find that inspiration and agency is a prophylaxis to burnout. So the more senior you are, the more agency you have, uh, the more you are your own boss, the more that uh, that can prevent you from burning out um, because you do have control over it. You just have to always be mindful of how much you're working. It's true. I think when we, you know, entrepreneurs and solopreneurs, you get into this thing in the beginning, you loving it. And, and then you get to a point where it, I think you start to feel like you no longer have agency or like it's spinning out of control and you have commitments and teams and, 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 you know, when it's small and manageable, it can feel good. But if it spins out of control, that's when the burnout starts. So just being aware of that and knowing that those things can happen and then 
creating a system and a, and, and a way of approaching it can be really powerful. Now, let's get into solutions because we've just gotten, I mean, now I'm like, oh, stressed out, like, oh my goodness, I got to watch out for the burnout. And I imagine a lot of people listening are either saying like, okay, my boss is doing this to me or, oh, my team feels like maybe I get the sense that they're burned out. So what are the kinds of things that people can start to do to reverse this epidemic? It's really important to remind people and, and I do this often, is that it is a hopeful situation. It is manageable. And I write a ton of prescriptive advice in the book in that I, you know, I I say, you know, this is what you should do and this will help. Uh, not just for us as individuals, there's lots of self-care, yes, that we're aware of, but inside of teams and organizations, it's all about looking at an organization. I like to sort of um, describe this, a concept or um, sort of, um, compare an organization to a brain. You know, brains have to wire and rewire to uh, adapt to change. The process of neuroplasticity in the brain is just so important to me. And when I uh, do a ton of research around how we develop the, the culture inside of our organizations, it's the same way that you would look at at an um, example of a brain. We have to actually deem it important. It's small changes. It's it's repeated changes over time. It's creating an environment that slowly starts to develop the subconscious pattern. And that means that it's easy, simple things to do. It's just about doing them and actually making them a priority, which is the hard part for a lot of folks. I say even just to start off, if you're a manager, abandon a whole bunch of those those useless meetings that we are still participating on, and now it's gotten even worse because we do it over Zoom. Meeting fatigue was a problem beforehand. Now here we are again, just making it worse by having to stare at each other constantly. And if we can, you know, look at abandoning a lot of those, make them walk and talk, switch out different ways of communicating, different modes of communicating, um, making sure not a whole bunch of people are on that call if they don't need to be, you know, having asynchronous meetings where you videotape it and then whoever wants to watch it at their leisure so they don't need to be in the same space in the same time at one moment. And then so reduce all that and then put in back one meeting. And a lot of people roll their eyes. They're like, what? And now you're saying one more meeting. This meeting needs to be consistent and frequent. It needs to be from now until eternity. If you're going to really change the neural wiring of your organization, it has to be every week where you sit down and have a non-work related discussion with your team. And you have to ask, how are you? People are going to lie and say they're fine. Then we need to probe more and say, hey, are you really fine? Give me a high and a low. So we have to actually be prescriptive about what that looks like. A lot of people aren't going to share in those first few months, but if it's consistent and they know that their boss is going to ask them to do this and we're going to have this team meeting every week, eventually that trust will be built and that psychological safety to share between the lines, the gray area. And then it has to be, we solve this together. What can we do as a team to make next week a little bit easier for each other? very simple micro-targeted changes. They're solves that are collaborative. It's not individual responsibility solve. And then me as a manager should say, what can I do for you to make next week easier? 
three simple questions that are done weekly end up getting to the gray area. If someone's saying every week, you know, it's been a real struggle. I have my kid at home. She's chronically ill, or I have to put my mom in a home and I'm feeling really nervous about that. You know, you start to see that if that's accumulated, then you get to see between the lines of people's lives. And that's when you get to ask them the questions that are meaningful, that helps prevent their, um, their chronic stress and will lead to you preventing burnout in the long run. FOMO. Yeah, it's, I think about this, like when I was first coming out of college, I felt like senior people didn't care. Like I was a, an input in their machine and they, you know, sort of like their, their objective was to squeeze as much work out of me as they could. And that used to be the model. And I think it still is for many people. But the problem is like, especially right now, like you're not going to retain people and finding people is really hard. And especially when you're talking about the industries that you identified earlier, which are some of these like public facing industries or hourly workers where there's really, um, it can be very thankless work and really hard work and the money's not there. Like if you're managing a team of people or you're, you're trying to build a team of people like that and you just, you know, you're not, you're not competing on price alone. You're, you're also trying to retain people with culture and other things. Like if you're not in touch with how those people are feeling, forget about it. And so this is all very sensible. And, you know, if you listen to the people who are doing the work or the people who are supporting, you know, in the office, the people who don't get the thank yous and you listen to how they're feeling, I mean, that's, that's where all the, the learning is. And, and I feel like senior people could be so disconnected. It's just, it's incredible to me. So that, that sounds like a, a very sensible set of questions. Now, I'd love to know how you think about the sort of Gen Zs and all of this mix, because what I've noticed, I was reading this article in the Times recently, New York Times, about how millennials are realizing that the Gen Zs are really different than them and how, for example, the Gen Zs will say, I mean, I don't want to stereotype, but there was one in particular that said, hey, if I finish my work, why do I have to you know, stay till five? Can I leave at three? So there's a very different mindset out there, and especially for people who's, who've been doing work from home ever since they graduated from college. So what is your 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 take on that, the change in how we see work over, over time? You know, it's it been really interesting because it was, uh, even when I started this, what, 12 years ago, I started researching well-being, you know, in work and, and doing the data insights. And millennials at the time were the generation that no one understood because they were, you know, asking for more. And there was lots of questions about burnout being a whiny millennial problem. And, you know, the thing is, is that I think actually, you know, when, when young people start their work, they do have these kind of questions. Like, why are we working these hours where doesn't necessitate me being here? Why are we not working towards goals? People should be able to work when and how they want if they're faster at 6 a.m. in the morning than they are at six o'clock at night. I mean, it should be all about when we're most productive, optimizing just our own, you know, biological uh, opportunities. We should be able to uh, really uh, encourage people to work faster. There's some great, uh, um, really great research uh, out of the Scandinavian countries, which is always, you know, great to see them <laughs> doing this research because they're always the first and they're the best examples of the happiest countries. And, you know, the, it, it's homogenous, so it's not necessarily easy to just take that group and pull it into the, you know, North America and say that that's exactly how it's going to work. But when they look at the 35-hour work week, what they found is that all and productivity, uh, all of these metrics that they define as success 
without being a 35 hour work week, we're equal or more, but you know, we're, we're higher levels of productivity and their metrics were more successful. Even looking at policing, because they looked across the public sector with all different kinds of roles. And they found that, you know, even policing their closed case files increased in less hours. You know, the IRS did a better job of, you know, answering, um, the, the, the customer's requests. I mean, all these different types of data points in 35 hour work weeks. So I think Gen Z's do have a point um, in saying they're, what's, what is the point? And yet we have also found that they are a highly burned out group and same with millennials. And a lot of that has to do with these reasons. The reasons are they have very little agency. Uh, they might be asking for this, but there's a few people, I would say predominantly most young people in their early days of work don't just put up their hand and say, why do I need to be here? That might've been a couple edge cases, but I don't think that's standard. Um, and we also see um, that they have golden handcuffs. They have a huge amount of expenses to pay back uh, with their uh, student loans. They feel indebted servitude. They're in um, a, an environment right now where they have no visibility with their boss. Leaders are exhausted with one-on-ones and they don't feel they're effective. So those normal opportunities for a younger professional to be able to show off who they are and their work ethic, they're not getting any of that. Plus, there are single occupancy dwellers inside of urban centers, and they've had to deal with extreme loneliness this last year without any connection to family and friends and their work. So they have a reason for wondering if this is the right approach. And they're also basically in a lot of industries like finance and tech and healthcare, they're, it's like hunger games those first five years. It's like being hazed at work, where if you work 80 hours, you will get ahead for all those that don't make it. You know, they're they're whatever off the island or <laughs> they're, they're done in that field. And so I think we, we sort of diminish it for that group and think that they're just, you know, just complaining. And yet they have a lot of barriers that they're dealing with and they're highly burned out and extremely lonely and very unwell. Yeah. I think back to my early days in finance, I did FaceTime. I would never leave before my boss. I was there sitting like twiddling my thumbs and, and it was dumb and questioning these things. It's good because there is no reason to stay with the old way if something else is the data proves that it works better and yeah it takes time to transition but frankly this whole thing is an opportunity to just do things a little different and a little better all right the book is the burnout epidemic you can find out more at jennifer-moss.com and you can find jennifer on linkedin and twitter under the hand of and you can find Jennifer on LinkedIn and Twitter under the handle Jen Lee Moss. That's J-E-N-L-E-I-G-H-M-O-S-S. Jen Moss, thanks so much for being here. Thanks so much, Patrick. It was a great conversation. It was so nice to meet you. FOMO. If you like today's show, please be sure to rate it and recommend it to your friends. And as always, you can find me on Instagram at Patrick J. McGinnis, on Twitter at PJ McGinnis, and on the web at FOMOSapiens.com or PatrickMcGinnis.com, where you can get all kinds of free resources to live a more decisive and entrepreneurial life. FOMO Sapiens is recorded in New York City. Theme music is by Mike McGinnis and editing and post-production is by Josh Elstrom. If you like today's show, please be sure to rate it and recommend it to your friends. And as always, you can find me at FOMOSapiens.com and at PatrickMcGinnis.com. To advertise on FOMO Sapiens, reach out to contact at FOMOSapiens.com. FOMO.